Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Nicole Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a forensic pathologist, and today on the show, we'll talk about her journey into forensic pathology. We'll talk about her fellowship at the University of New Mexico, starting her career at the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office in Chicago, and about her goal of increasing the visibility of forensic pathologists as first responders. After the show, stay tuned for a preview of our upcoming episode with Dr. Travis Brown from this Pathological Life podcast. And now, here's Dr. Nicole Jackson. I wanted to start with a little bit about your background. Now, you initially studied uh, psychology, and then you went on to uh, earn a Master's of Public Health and Epidemiology. Back at that time, did you did you already intend to go to medical school? So I did. So I was fortunate enough. I graduated from a public high school in Frenchville, New Jersey. And I was right down the street from Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And what they did, they had an outreach program to local high schools, many of which were very diverse or um, poor or lower middle class. And mine okay. was one. Um, and I was able to participate in a mini medical school program. And so it was this immersive after school experience for quote unquote high performing high school students. And it really grabbed my attention. Um, medicine wasn't really on my radar prior to that. Um, you know, I did score well and test well. Um, and so that's what drew me into medicine. So I entered undergrad actually intending to apply to medical school. Um, I went to Duke okay. undergrad and I chose Duke because I valued their approach to the liberal arts education. So you couldn't be quote unquote pre-med, pre-law or business. Instead, you fulfilled those requirements and then you were forced or encouraged to major in whatever actually interests you. So for me, it was psychology. And so the psych department there consisted of four branches, which included neuroscience, cognitive science, developmental uh, psych, and then personality and social behavior. So I just chose that because I thought no matter what career I went to, um, whether that was medicine or something else, uh, learning how people act the way they do and why, how we engage with our environment to inform our decisions, I thought that would be good and carry forward whatever I did. So that's why I did psychology. I really entertained being a therapist okay. or a psychologist, um, even psychiatry, but um, in med school, um, and we'll discuss this later, I kind of got drawn to something else. And then the public health degree I wound up going to Tulane for medical school, and they had a dual degree program with their school public health. So I earned a master's in public health and epidemiology at the same time I was earning my medical degree. Oh, okay. You know, uh, back to the uh, the psychology thing. Do you feel like um, kind of the, the skills that you learned in that program help you now as a medical examiner? I, I would think that it that it would. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it helps me just as a coworker and a colleague, right? You're always interacting with people. And then on top yeah, of that, yeah. you're interacting with grieving families. And sometimes they lash out. Um, and it's usually via phone. Um, and it, I think I have a better understanding of where they're coming from, um, why they're saying certain things. But, you know, all, every conversation I've had, even if it's been with an angry family member at the end, they've always come around and said thank you, which is really invaluable. Sure, sure. That yeah, that's got to feel great to to hear that after after going through everything with them. So you did an internship then in general surgery. Now, was the plan at the time then to become a surgeon? 
Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So that mini med school program I participated in, part yes. of that we were exploring the internal organs and they did, they drew a lot of parallels to surgery. Um, and then during undergrad, I participated in this program over the summer. It was originally called the Summer Medical Education Program. I believe it now goes by the Summer Health Professions Education Program, but it's geared toward either first generation um, students or minorities, underrepresented minorities. And part of that, we did an anatomy dissection lab of the thoracic cavity. And again, they made many tie-ins with surgery, and it really seemed to be a natural fit to me. Uh, I was always good with my hands. I have fixed things growing up. I created things. I did arts. Um, and I liked that interaction. So I went into medical school, very gung-ho, general surgery, didn't uh, consider any other really subspecialty, had a lot of research and publication. I was even the president of the interest group, everything. And then I transitioned to a larger wow, okay. surgical program for my residency um, that was much bigger than where I trained for medical school, uh, structured differently. Unfortunately, they weren't the best in terms of treating um, trainees, all the same, especially women of color, but any trainee of color. I just realized it wasn't a good fit for me, both career-wise and my mental health. Um, and I was also fortunate enough, my program director, uh, he was leaving. And he was like, hey, I realize you're not happy. If you want to get out, I can get you out. Which is really nice and very supportive because I wasn't happy. And I wound up um, filling an unfilled position back in right. New Orleans, um, which is a city I love. And that's where I came from medical school in the anatomic and clinical pathology residency there after a long, really in-depth conversation with the program director there. Um, and over that year of general surgery, I did a lot of soul searching, reflecting on, you know, what were my favorite courses in medical school? What drew me into medicine? And what do I really think would fulfill me for the rest of my career? And so I actually switched to pathology specifically to do forensics. I like, you know, there are a lot of similarities with surgery. You're still cutting. Okay. I don't have the pressure of killing anyone, of course, because they're dead. And I've, you know, I had the personal experience of losing people suddenly and then living in this state of, of this uncomfortable unknown, you know, what happened? Am I at risk? And it's an opportunity you get to meet with families and individuals at a very intimate point in their life and provide them closure so that they can move on. And so to me, that will never get old. So that's why I switched and switched into forensics. And I think this all speaks to, you know, we're not doing so well in pathology recruiting people. And all these experiences I had were really missed opportunities for us to insert ourselves into, you know, training's paths from back, um, that mini med school program I did both um, in the summer and um, back in high school. You know, they talked about surgery a lot, but no one spoke about pathology and pathology of the human body. And so I did my residency at LSU, and that's the first time the pathologist was integrated into the autopsy uh, experience for med students. So part of our autopsy rotation was going down to their tanks, that's what they called them there, um, and answering their questions about gross findings. And then we would actually make them little cassettes, um, make slides and go over the, um, the slides with them. And so they had an appreciation as first-year medical students. This is what a pathologist did. And, you know, it helps generate interest in the field. So hopefully going forward, there's some way more programs across the nation can integrate pathology early. Yeah, that sounds like that was a great experience for you. You know, that's one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast mm -hmm. is kind of shed light on, you know, pathology and just lab medicine in general, because you're right. We don't you don't hear a lot about that 
stuff early on in school. We need more of that voice, you know, to, to the public, the, especially these days. Oh, I agree. We need more. Yeah, and especially, I mean, you're you're right. You know, pathologists. There's there's a shortage, and there's a huge shortage of forensic pathologists all over the world, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm a firm believer. Early exposure is the key. You know, whether that's high school or even earlier, but certainly medical school. It needs to be more integrated. So people just don't know, and you don't know until you see yourself. You put your hands in the body and experience what an actual pathologist does. And so many people in med school, they think pathologists do, you know, what we learn in pathology, which, as you know, isn't what we do at all as laboratory um, right. administrators, as, you know, um, cytologists, as, you know, the different roles we fill are almost endless. Mm-hmm. So after your pathology residency, you went on to a forensic pathology fellowship at the University of New Mexico, the Office of the Medical Investigator. Now, I've heard about this program. Uh, it's pretty well known, and I imagine it's pretty, because of that, it's pretty difficult to get in there. So what was it like to to apply to that program? Uh, so I'll start with it seems like an eternity ago I applied. Um, so pathology, unlike a lot of other specialties, we don't do the match. And so I wound up applying toward the end of my second year of residency. Um, and so you apply about two years before you intend on starting. The application process was relatively simple. I think it was uh-huh. hard in the sense of every program is on a different timeline. Some people interview in February, some people just in the spring, some people not until the fall, and you really don't know uh, which does what. Not everybody's website is up to date, which was really frustrating. But I thought the actual process wasn't so bad. It was just organizing all my documents. But I applied, and I, I mean, it was pretty straightforward to me. Um, that being said, I didn't apply traditionally to general pathology, so I don't know that experience. But compared to general surgery interviews, it, I thought it was a lot easier and less stressful and more straightforward. I, I don't know. I didn't think it was that difficult. But also, they took me, so I don't know. Maybe it was a good match. Sure, sure. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, how, how did it feel to be selected there because of the prestige of, of the program? You know, it felt really nice. Um, and I will say I applied to, I think my final list is about 10 programs. Three interviewed me within the same two weeks, and they all offered me positions, which was very humbling. And I liked all three. Uh-huh. Um, and I will say for anyone considering forensics, you know, there are certain programs with big names, such as the OMI, where I trained. I believe New York, Baltimore, Miami, but there are a ton of other programs that are equally excellent. And so I looked into others that were recommended to me either by local forensic pathologists or um, our autopsy pathologists in the hospital, because there are, there are great programs that, you know, quote unquote, aren't the historians, but can be a perfect match for someone. I like the other two um, I received acceptances from. I chose the OMI because I felt comfortable there. I like the idea of having co-fellows. Some programs you'll be the only fellow, which can be a pro or con, but I thought it would be an interesting year, a potentially stressful year, and I would like to have trainees on my level to bounce ideas off of. And there were four of us our year, and I love those three. We still text all the time. I still bounce ideas off of them. So it was really nice. It was a positive uh, thing. But the application process, I don't think was that hard. 
I'm hoping with COVID, it's somewhat streamlined for everyone. I feel terrible for anyone applying to anything right now. Um, I'm hoping with COVID and with things being electronic, people not having to fly and pay for flights and things like that, it'll be easier and less stressful for, you know, applicants. But I didn't, I didn't find it too stressful. And then being on the flip side, being a fellow there as people interviewed, it was, um, it's very low key. I feel like once they decide, you know, they want to invite you for an interview, they just want to make sure you feel like you're a fit there. So it was very relaxed. Same thing with the program. I was very anxious starting because it had such a big reputation. Um, And I've seen, you know, I've trained at places that have these reputations and, you know, it can go multiple ways. You can have people that are arrogant and they think they're the greatest thing known to man, or you can have people that were down to earth. And this office was definitely the latter. Like everybody was down to earth. You can knock on anyone's door, ask them anything. I never felt stupid, even if I thought I asked a stupid question. So it was a very relaxed process. It's also just a relaxed area, Albuquerque, New Mexico, the desert. Um, so maybe that's part of it. Yeah, that, that definitely sounds like a good environment uh, for, for learning. Now, this this fellowship program it includes several different rotations. And I, I, I looked it up. It, so it's you've got toxicology and forensic odontology, forensic anthropology. And then you also do rotations at the state and local crime labs. Uh, which of these was your favorite? So let me start by saying they were all excellent. Um, they're all well done. They all expose you to these areas we consult and work with. Um, and you will work with throughout your career as a forensic pathologist. I have to okay. say my favorite was the crime lab. Uh, so it's really interesting to see what happens after we collect evidence at autopsy. We package it, we seal it, and then we send it to the police department, whether that's local or state. And then what do they do with that? So it's everything from when they take blood or bullet fragments, and we can see how they enlarge that on a wall. So you can see the individual engravings from the rifling of the gun so they can match uh, the ammunition to the uh-huh. gun. We also, um, you know, Albuquerque, I know everybody knows Breaking Bad has a history of having a meth problem, but we actually got to see methamphetamine in their lab and how they process it and hold it in a plastic bag, of course. Oh, wow. Uh, it's also the rotation where we went out into the middle of the desert to this ridiculous shooting range and fired an array of guns. And this is everything from old, like World War II guns to modern, like semi-automatics. And this is coming from some, someone who is very not into guns. I was very apprehensive of the rotation. Uh, I never held a gun before, never shot one, was kind of afraid of it, but they taught you how to do it. And it's for an educational point because part of what we do is we analyze uh, wound characteristics, gunshot wounds, and range of fire. And it helps us to see, you know, when you shoot this gun at contact range, this is what the entrance wound will look like versus at an intermediate range versus a distant range. And this is what the soot looks like. This is what stippling looks like. Um, so it was really fun. Um, it was also a really oh, wow. experience to bond with my co-fellows outside of, you know, formal academic training. And the guys right. because out there are men and women. They were really nice um, and very down to earth. And it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was great. So when you're out there, you're shooting at, were they like ballistic? Targets. Oh, targets. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Okay, I was wondering if it was like those ballistic dummies that you see on TV sometimes. Okay, no. and then you would analyze the the right. Then you would walk up, and okay. somebody would walk up, get the sheet, pull it back, and you would see the different holes um, and how they look. It was just fun. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah, that that's good, uh, and it's good practical mm-hmm. experience too. Okay, I, you know, I've heard the 
forensic anthropology department there in New Mexico was particularly impressive. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the forensic anthropology department is very impressive. So we work hand in hand with them throughout the year, both as a rotation where we go to UNM's campus and we sit and have lectures and we work hands on with um, basically the skeletons of people who have donated their body to their lab. And we kind of read the human oh, skeleton, okay. you know, figure out what different vertebrae look like, what different ribs look like, which patella is which. Um, how to differentiate the different bones, but also um, they teach us how to engage them. So we utilize forensic anthropology when we have a lot of skeletonized remains. So when a body has decomposed and you don't really have soft tissue left, you don't really have skin, but you have bones, what do we do? Um, Because our expertise as forensic pathologists is, you know, the soft tissue. We analyze skin for wound patterns. We analyze the organs, but what happens when they're gone? That's when we engage forensic anthropology. So they taught us bone basics. You know, how do we differentiate a human bone versus non-human bones? What are the features that might make you think this came from a man versus a woman? What is a bio profile? How do they analyze whether the trauma we're seeing on a bone was anti-mortem or anti-mortem before death versus something that happened post-mortem when an animal came and played with the bone, you know? And so this is, by Dr. Um, Heather Edgar. She's great. Okay. Um, and she was very instrumental. Um, so we utilized the CT scanner at the OMI. And she created, she helped create this whole body uh, decedent database called the New Mexico Decedent Image Database. Um, it's a website where researchers can access for free over, I think, over 15,000 full body CT scans. And then they have all this information, you know, what comorbidities the decedents had, what their age was. And so this allows people to gather a lot more information for research projects. So the anthropology lab has been busy with that. They also just work, they have a site in our office at the Office of the Medical Investigator. And so they walk through the autopsy suite all the time. They'll stop at um, the tables as we're dissecting. They'll ask questions because they're smart. They're very smart, engaged women, and they want to know more than bones. So we, we teach them, they teach us, and it's, it was a really good experience. And there's also uh, in, in-house MRI there in New Mexico as well. You, you use both CT and MRI. Is that on every, every body? So we use the CT on nearly every decedent. The CT scanner, um, the only time it really isn't utilized is if, uh, it's down or broken or undergoing repair. Or if you are morbidly obese, I forget the cutoff, somewhere around 400 pounds won't fit in the CT scan. Um, but otherwise, oh, okay. everyone, it's less helpful in um, infants and young kids. And then the MRI is only used in select cases, usually um, pediatric homicide cases um, as a follow-up. But we usually start with the CT and then if indicated, you will utilize the MRI. But MRI is in-house. It's just utilized a lot less. CT is nearly everyone. And it's really good. Um, so the CT scan, it gives you so much detail. Not everything, but so much detail on your soft tissue. Um, and that detail you don't get on x-ray. And so most offices around the, the nation are using some format of x-ray on their decedent. That's usually to see, you know, is there a retained projectile or bullet or a tip of a knife? Um, are there bone fractures, just major injuries, but you have so much more detail with postmortem CT that it enables you a lot of times to convert what mm-hmm. would be a full autopsy exam that would take an hour or more to do 
to an external and then you can just read the CV. And so that's really important. And it's really, I believe, um, postmortem CT needs to be or will be kind of the wave of the future for forensics. So there are a few offices in the nation that do have CT, but I think we are the only one or one of maybe two that regularly utilizes it. Most are just starting to use it, um, including where I train or work now in Chicago. We're starting to utilize it more. But the problem is, as you alluded to earlier, there are not enough of us, not enough forensic pathologists, and the amount of deaths every year is growing. So how do you maintain accreditation, which limits you to a certain number of autopsies per year? Well, part of that is you can safely convert a full autopsy, which counts as one, to an external, which counts around a third. You know, that's going to save your numbers. It's going to protect your forensic pathologist because it is taxing over time physically to be doing autopsies. And so that will help. And I think it will be utilized slowly but surely across the nation. Okay. That, that makes sense. How much um, uh, tr- like extra training did you get for interpreting a, a CT? Uh, is, that, is that normally part of like a pathology residency or a forensic pathology residency? Or is that, was that extra? It was specific. The way they did it at um, the OMI, we had lectures on it. And then we didn't leave the office or the days until I believe September. So the first two months you're there, you are, our morning conferences were at a table. And so every decedent was scanned at the beginning of the day before we even got there. So the whole group was looking at every CT. You just had attendings pointing things out. It's really, I mean, you learn the basics of radiology in med school. Nothing has really changed. We're not looking for, you know, minor things. We're looking for major things that can kill you. And they really do pop out on CT. So when you're doing that day after day for two months, you have an idea. And then we also, uh-huh. at the time, we had a visiting couple. They were both forensic pathologists and radiologists from uh, Pan, I believe. Um, and so they were also there as an easy consult if we had any uh, questions, especially with our more delicate cases like the pediatric homicides, and they would take a closer look. There's also a relationship with um, the radiology department at UNM, and so we would email a certain doctor, and he had access, and he would follow up if there was anything, particularly in those pediatric homicide cases that needed a closer eye and closer scrutiny. But by and large, you just learn, um, and things come back to you. It was fairly easy for me because as a surgery intern, we were responsible for reading all our CT scans for certain things. And so I was comfortable and I still am with CT. But I think it was good. And now that I'm in Chicago and they recently have acquired a CT scan, I believe last year, and they're looking to implement it because it's a busy office and they recognize its utility. You know, I'm pretty well positioned to help out other forensic pathologists in the office in interpreting things, you know. Sure, sure. All right. So you you mentioned you're you're in Chicago now at Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. So let's. Uh, all right. You're in uh, forensic pathology fellowship, and at what point do you start looking for uh, jobs? Like, how, how does how does that work? Uh, it's you know it was it was a headache a little it was a little more intensive than I thought it would be because jobs just pop up and you don't necessarily know what's going to pop up when, and so we were encouraged by our program director. You know, you start in July, just start looking now. And there are job posting boards. We have two big national organizations. And you just kind of peruse and see, see what pops up and what might interest you. So you start early and then you just right. hope 
things pop up uh, where you live. Uh, so what was it about Chicago that, that interested you? So Chicago interests me. I ultimately chose there because I love the city. I absolutely love Chicago. So I have many friends here, both from undergrad and medical school. So I've visited Chicago numerous times in the summer and the winter and still loved it even in the winter. Um, it's a very cultured city, uh, clean, a lot of art, beautiful architecture, delicious food, and it's still affordable. And I think partially it's because of the cold winters. It keeps a lot of people away. Um, yeah, so prices that. aren't going up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then I personally believe, um, well, I do believe, the role of the forensic pathologist is largely a public service or public health service role. Um, and it's, you know, community involvement. And so the community, I, this is a community I think, I think we all see on the news needs help. And it's yes. something I wanted to be involved with outside of work, which was important to me as a black female to be involved in the black community. And so okay. I think office gives me both. Um, I love the office itself. It's uh, one of few, I'd say, very well, pretty well-funded offices. So one of the higher starting salaries in the nation. Um, it was just approved for a few more staff positions for additional forensic pathologists. So it's looking to grow. Um, and then alongside of that, they have a really good pension, which is nice. And I'm somebody with a large, heavy uh, student lumber. And so that all really helps to know um, financially is pretty sound. Uh, the office itself is very diverse in terms of who's working here, and I feel very welcomed and at home already. Um, I really like my co-pathologists. The fellows are lovely. They're very sweet. Um, and I feel comfortable working here, which is, you know, very important. And even though it's busy, um, and Lord, I wasn't here, of course, in the spring when they were drowning in work, but even though people still catching up, people right. take the time to, you know, help me get acclimated and, you know, people are still happy and nice. And it's also very streamlined and efficient. So while it is quote unquote busy, it's really not as bad as I thought it would be because the autopsies are a little more efficient in the way they're performed. So those are all the reasons I chose it. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, and we, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. So you're out of fellowship about, you said about seven weeks. So you come out of forensic pathology fellowship into the middle of a pandemic, which uh, <laughs> seems like an unusual way to start your career into a, a major city that's has a lot of COVID cases. Uh, how was that transition then? So I thought about it and trying to think about it, how to answer it. It's definitely been a less uh -huh. than ideal way to start a career, but you know, what are you going to do? There's really no option. You know, I signed this contract back in December. Um, I know the office, you know, watching from afar, they needed more help. And I was happy to help. Um, I think any transition in life is hard, you know, whether you're going from trainee to faculty, one office to another, um, and they have different standard operating procedures that might be completely different. Going from one state to another is hard. They're all difficult. Goodness, you put them all together and, you know, it's, it's really hard. You throw a pandemic on and it's, it's been exhausting. I'm not going to lie. Um, right. Because outside of work, you know. My mom flew out to help me move. You know, I'm single. That was really helpful. But the move itself was hard and, you know, things fall through because of the pandemic. And you can't really order things from home because everyone's on, everything's on back order because everyone's nesting. Deliveries are delayed. Right. It's been a headache. And then you have the board situations. The boards got pushed back because of COVID hitting and because it hit Florida. And that's where we have to take our boards. Oh, wow. And so that's, yeah. I didn't even know so that. that's now the same 
Yeah, so I, you know, that's annoying. But I really feel bad for, you know, people taking their impacts because um, that was worse. Um, you know, people that are in the same thing for people taking their general APCP boards, theirs got pushed back even further. And you can't study for that, you know, indefinitely. It's not, you know, right. so I will for them, you know, but now that's pushed back to the same week as our national meeting, which I'm presenting at. And it's just, there's really not enough time to do everything. Um, I'm hoping things let up after boards in this meeting. And then you throw on COVID and you have increased in death from COVID related deaths. And now Chicago is having its most violent summer, like in 28 years. So it's been a little nuts. Um, the good thing is, and part of the reason I did choose this office as a new attending, they have every single day, there's a unpended conference where you bring any case and sign out the day of for cause and manner of death in front of the whole office and you present it. And so people will point out or ask different questions. Did you consider this? What were these results? So as much as I feel like I might be dropping the ball, I guess I'm not because, you know, things would come up at that conference, which is really nice. And then our office has also taken on the role of reviewing the medical records of all COVID-19 positive deaths in the county to ensure they're properly certified cause and manner of death, as well as to list, you know, basic comorbidities for public health research. Thankfully, it's really, it's low okay. right now. Only usually a few cases a day, maybe at max 10. But you can imagine, and I wasn't here for it, back when, you know, Ch Chicago was getting rocked, you know, in March, April, they were having, you know, 90 cases yeah. a day. And it's like, how do you maintain? I really hope that doesn't happen again. Um, but it's been, <laughs> it's been rough. It's been tiring. I was not much of a sleeper before this. Now I sleep basically when I'm not working and I hope it all just works out with boards and everything, but doing what I can, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I read an article about the, uh, the medical examiner's office set up at like an overflow facility, uh, in a, like a refrigerated warehouse or something like that early on, like in March or April. Is that, do you know if that's still in existence? I don't officially know if that's in existence. My guess would be because everyone's anticipating a potential second wave, it's uh -huh. probably still in existence, whether or not it's being utilized right now. Okay. Um, I don't think so because it, it, the numbers have dropped, you know, since I started, sure. we haven't had that many COVID deaths, but. I would imagine they wouldn't give that space up if we're anticipating a resurgence, which I, I hope we don't have for multiple reasons. Right. Yeah, me too. Uh, so what, like what extra precautions are there during this, the pandemic? I mean, aside from like, are you just wearing an N95 mask all the time or what extra things are there? Having started at this office after COVID already hit, I don't really know what was happening before, but to me, okay. We've just been utilizing standard precautions because, you know, as part of forensics, you're opening rib cages and potentially aerosolizing things, including um, TB and other infectious disease. So in theory, you know, as long as you're following basic precautions, which includes double gloving, which includes eyewear, which includes, you know, an N95, which we were doing pre-COVID, you should be covered. And so the only difference we have is if there's someone known positive that we have to autopsy, such as a homicide, um, we, they will do them in the decomp room. So everyone in the room is not exposed. But other than that, not too much is changed in terms of protocol here. I think it's been a little harder because 
for scene investigations. A lot of times the police aren't going into residences now because of fear of getting COVID. So I think it oh, sure. okay. a little harder because you don't have necessarily all the information you would have around circumstances surrounding death if they're not physically entering the space, right? You've kind of anchored the police uh-huh. reports and they're doing that out of, you know, they need to protect themselves and they don't know what they're walking into. But I think that's made it a little harder on our end. Oh yeah. I, I, I didn't even think of that. That, that would make it quite a bit more difficult because there's a lot of information that you can get from, from the scene. Right. And even, and even I'm talking about nothing COVID related justice, how the body was, you know, if somebody was in a bathtub, was their head above or below water? Are we concerned about drowning? And now all of that information isn't provided because they're not going in and doing a thorough job, which, you know, all that means is we take extra steps to make sure we're not missing anything. One of your, uh, your particular interests is increasing the visibility of forensic pathologists as first responders to threats on our nation's life expectancy. Uh, now, I, I got this from your, from your website. Now, wh- what does that mean to you and why is that important to you? What I have experienced in my brief career is that people do not view forensic pathologists as first responders. You could see this in COVID. You know, people think of emergency room physicians, which they are, nurses. But we are also first responders. Um, you know, we're some of the first physicians and people to see what is killing us as a community, as a population, as, as a nation, you know, in real time. We don't have to wait for people to aggregate data to see there's a trend in increase in overdose death during the, the COVID pandemic. You know, we are seeing this right now as it's happening. And mm-hmm. I think people aren't recognizing that. And so, you know, prior to COVID, the medical examiner and coroner system in the U.S., you know, it was understaffed and it's overtaxed, right? So they're estimated to be approximately four to 500 full-time board-certified forensic pathologists to do the work of about 11 to 1,200. And this was before COVID, and we all know, you know, everything's gotten worse. Um, and so there was a disinvestment right. in the system. And so when COVID hit, a lot of people were pressed, you know, across multiple disciplines, but a lot of autopsies weren't performed on these COVID-related tests, which I think is a real big missed opportunity. Because a lot of what we know from influenza, that came from autopsy series, you know, and we don't, we're not having that for COVID because offices weren't able to do that for a multitude of reasons, you know, whether that's as a safety precaution um, or just being, in, you know, overwhelmed with cases. But that's a lot of lost information that we really need as we do not understand this virus fully and what it's, what's going on. And there's so many public health roles that we fill as forensic pathologists that I think people just don't know and don't recognize. For instance, we are intimately engaged with the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. So we have rec- reporting guidelines that help protect the public um, versus unreasonable risks of injuries from these consumer products. And so when you hear about recalls, it's usually based on accidental deaths that were investigated by us. And we recognize, you know, this is not a safe product for the community. And same thing, we investigate maternal fetal deaths and we analyze mortality in communities. And there's basically a large public health role and value that is specifically and uniquely added by forensic pathology um, that's not recognized. And why is this important? Because without us basically being well-supported and well-staffed and financially supported, over time, people are going to die, you know, when they shouldn't. 
in, in the short run, right? There simply aren't enough of us. It's worsening, as we already said. And so right. what do we need to do? We need to attract trainees to the field, you know, and part of that is offering competitive salaries, which we don't have, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work in an office that is considered relatively competitive, but, you know, if I had gone into theme path somewhere, I could be making a lot more. Um, I chose to come here because I really thought it was a calling for me, but other people who also have, you know, debt or different goals, they might not look at forensics because, you know, they have a lot of loans or they have different life goals for what they want. Um, and then when you look into the language of public service loan forgiveness plans, a lot of times they're written to include primary care specialties, but they leave out forensics because we deal with the dead and not the living. And I think a lot of people are missing that we specifically study dead and the death to serve the living. And so I say this based on multiple conversations I've had with people within and outside of the medical community. And I tell right. them the different things we do and what roles we, we fill and everyone seems shocked. Which, you know, it's like an underground, behind-the-scenes public health campaign. And so for us to be written out of, you know, public service loan forgiveness, we don't directly deal with the living, I think is problematic. It's also an easy, easy solution to potentially get more of us um, to help the general U.S. population. So that's kind of my spiel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, you were interested in helping out the community there in Chicago. Now, in, in your short time that you've been there, have you been able to to participate in any of those things? Not really. So I have reached out to different organizations and, you know, most things are on hold because of COVID. People aren't gathering. And, oh, sure. sure um, of course. Slowly opening up. Um, and then there's always the issue of scheduling. So there's an upcoming volunteer thing I want to do. But of course, I'm going to work But eventually I will. But I have reached out. Um, and there are different initiatives I do plan on getting involved with, but everything's kind of limited right now and still slowly opening here. So the last thing I wanted to ask you then, what, what advice would you have for, for someone who was considering a career in forensic pathology? So I'll start by saying, I think it is an excellent career. I think it's particularly good if you have any interest in public health. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's great if you desire a good work-life balance. You know, a lot of people have families. Um, a lot of moms work in the field and they're able to balance, you know, taking care of their kids and going to activities and dads as well. I think it's great if you're the type of person that gets bored sitting at an office desk all day because, you know, you do autopsy some days, you testify some days. There's room to teach. There's room to conduct research. I think it's a great field um, for a multitude of reasons. And most of the people that go into it are pretty laid back and fairly happy people. I would say um, reach out and start early. So every year in terms of applying to fellowship, it seems earlier and earlier people apply. So I applied May of my second year. And when I was a fellow, people were interviewing, you know, in the fall of their second year. So every year it seems to go earlier um, and everyone has a different timeline. So I would say start sooner rather than later, which is it's really hard, right? If you don't know what you want to do to decide by the your first year of residency right. yeah. what you want to do, I think is problematic. And I would like, I don't know how, if everything could be pushed back at least a year, give people two years to explore, you know, their future careers, but it is, it is right now. So start earlier and then reach out, you know, reach out to forensic pathologists, you know, in your community, your autopsy pathologist, or even go online, go on Twitter, find people 
everyone in the field. We want more people. We want people that are interested and everyone's happy to answer questions, you know, or refer them to people they know because it is a small community. So everyone kind of knows everyone through one or two degrees of separation. So pretty friendly. I think it's a good career um, and a lot of opportunities uh, to really delve into something I think is really meaningful and impactful that goes overlooked. Dr. Jackson, thank you very much for being here. Sure. Thank you for having me. Great. Big thank you to Dr. Nicole Jackson. Now, as always, the links to everything we talked about today will be in the show notes, and that's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And of course, you can always follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, and I'll have a link to Dr. Jackson on Twitter as well in the show notes. And if you like this episode, reach out to Dr. Jackson on Twitter and let her know that you enjoyed it, and then share it with someone you know. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a preview of our upcoming episode with Dr. Travis Brown from Australia. So you mentioned you found your way into pathology. How did that happen? So when in, in medical school, it was, you know, I, I'm not quite sure. It, it, when you're in an area, you find out you keep on doing a ward round and some people are of the, oh, I'd love to do that one. And then they go to the next ward. Oh, I'd love to do that one. Unfortunately, I was the opposite. And I was like, no, I really don't want to do that one. No, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> Um, and I had an inspiring lecturer, her name was Professor Jane Dahlstrom, who was always nice, who was always lovely, always had time for students, uh, and would always explain things uh, that made sense. Uh, and that was where pathology comes in. You sit there and just go, you know, you look at physiology, but you would sit there and go, okay, so blood pressure would go up and down. Okay, well, they've got, you know, a cardiomyopathy well, what explains why it's where it is? And so I would always go back to the pathology textbooks. And that was what pathology is to me. It was understanding. It was knowing that this is how it works when we get a disease in this. Oh, this is the effect. And so you could actually make sense of it, you know, extrapolate uh, why it behaved how it was. So it made sense. And I enjoyed that part of it. For more from Dr. Travis Brown, check out his podcast, This Pathological Life, and stay tuned for our upcoming episode on the People of Pathology podcast.